gentlemen welcome back to a special facts versus rhetoric series crossing the pacific ocean i'll look back at my 2016 crossing of the pacific ocean aboard the 70 foot sailboat sponsored by garmin as part of the clipper around the world race where 12 identical boats race around the world and there are there are eight legs in this race and i participated in leg six from Qingdao, china to seattle washington and this is part four. We left off 11 days into the race in part three. And my last diary entry in part three was on March 31st. And I wouldn't make another one until April 3rd at 12.36 p.m. And this is the turning point in the race for everyone on the boats and everyone following the race at home. The next two weeks of this race will redefine my definitions of what I consider to be tired what I consider to be scared, what I consider to be exhausted, homesick, sore. Pretty much every emotion that I've ever felt in my life got redefined in the preceding two weeks. So let's get into it. On April 3rd at 12.36 p.m., this was my diary entry. It says, recap of last three days. Broken inner force day, a burial at sea, a worried wife. We fixed the inner force day, back to racing. Frozen rain at 40 knots hurts. The boat is freezing. My hands and feet are frozen. I'm getting frustrated with the passengers. We're 100 miles behind the leader. Night helming in pitch dark and 30 knots of wind. A storm jib hoist on the bow in 40 knots. A sail retrieval on the bow in 65 knots during the last squall and finally snowing today. So those were a bunch of random memories from the past three days of the race. So let's start with the broken inner force day. I was on deck when this happened and there was this just loud bang. And I thought we lost the mast. So, you know, I looked up and you know, it's still up. We're still sailing, but there was this just horrible sound and you knew something was, something was wrong. And then we noticed the inner force day was just swinging freely because it was still attached to the top of the mast, but where it connects to the deck itself, that broke. Luckily, we didn't have a stay sail up on it because we usually would hoist the stay sail on this inner force day, which would have created a whole nother clusterfuck. But so we're a little lucky there. So the inner force day connects to the deck and it's a huge stainless steel turnbuckle. It snapped right at the turnbuckle. And where it snapped was a solid, one, at least one inch thick piece of stainless steel. So our first order of business was to get the head sail down and try to get as much stress off of the mast as possible. Because this mast is being held up by two backstays. So they run from the top of the mast to the back of the boat. You have a couple side stays, one on each side of the mast that run from the top of the mast down to the sides. And then you have two four stays, one that runs from the top of the mast all the way to the front of the bow. And then you have an inner four stay, which is the one that broke that goes from the top of the mast down to a spot in between the mast and the bow of the boat. So once you lose one of those, 
you know, you don't have as much security holding that mast up. So we wanted to get that sail down, get as much tension off the rig as we can, and then try to sort out what the hell we were going to do next. So we get the sail down. We used a few of the spare halyards, which are the lines that pull a sail up to the top of the mast. So they were already connected at the top of the mast. So we used a few of those to further secure the mast down, call Ray's headquarters to find out who has this part. Because remember I said, everyone has spare parts. You got to find out which boat has the spare turnbuckle for the inner force day. So after what seemed like a long time, I don't know, I can't remember how long it was, but what seemed like a long time, we got word back that we, being the Garmin boat, was actually carrying the spare inner force day turnbuckle on our boat. Hey, pretty friggin' lucky there. So we didn't have to go meet up with another boat. We just had to find it in our boat, which we did. And by the time we got that sorted out and replaced, we were 100 miles behind the lead boat. So that kind of sucked. But what sucked even more is also in this three-day stretch where I didn't make a diary entry, we had a burial at sea. And this wasn't on our boat, but it was on another boat in the fleet. Around the world crew member, Sarah Young, aboard Icor Coal, that was the sponsor of that boat, was washed overboard. And by the time they got her back on the boat, she had passed away. So what happened here is she was in the cockpit, a wave washed her out of the boat, and she was not tethered in. And like I said previous, bad shit happens when you're not paying attention or you get lazy. That first thing you do when you come up through that companionway, before you even set foot on the deck is you stick your head out, you clip in. So now you're still in the boat at this point, you're clipped in and now you're okay to proceed or out of the companionway and into the cockpit. Okay, so that step was skipped and the cockpit does feel like a safe place and it, it is until it's not, okay? And Sarah was carried out of the cockpit into the lifelines by a wave and then another wave came and just washed her through the lifelines into the ocean. Once you're in the water, you have anywhere from probably 30 minutes to an hour, depending on what you're wearing. Okay, so even if you have a dry suit on, which prevents you from getting wet, keeps you dry, you're still immersed in the cold water. So as soon as you're immersed in the cold water, it starts to lower your body temperature and, you know, the clock starts for hypothermia and all the other bad shit that goes along with that. So remember what I said about the man overboard drill. You got to get the sails down. You got to get turned around and you have to try to find the casualty in the water. Now, when you get washed out of the cockpit of the boat, you can be sure that it's not sunny, calm conditions. Okay, so you have to do this fire drill in shit conditions. One, that makes the communication on the boat very difficult. It's a stressful situation as it is. You got a team member in the fucking water. And the problem is when you go into the water in those conditions, the only part of you that's out of the water is the top of your head. So in those conditions with big waves and big wind, it's like trying to, it's like trying to find an orange in the ocean. And that's actually how we practiced search grid training during one of our training weeks. We would throw an orange into the water. So we're sailing in the Solent. We'd throw an orange in, do a man overboard drill, but we didn't have someone like trying to keep an eye on the orange. You know, you need to simulate lo either losing sight of the person in the water or not seeing them going in the first place. So what happens is you throw the orange in, you hit the man overboard button on the GPS so it kind of pings the latitude and longitude where the person went into the water or somewhere near there. We get the sails down, we get the motor on, and then you start 
Now then you set up a search grid for that area. All right, so you know where the GPS was pinged, and now you have to do some math and look at the wind direction and the speed and kind of set up that grid where you think they're most likely to have drifted to, and you go back and forth on this grid and you try to find them. You, the whole time you're scanning the water, you have everyone scanning, looking for the orange. And we actually found the orange doing this. So back to the Pacific. Sarah is now in the water and they get the boat turned around and they get back to her and they get to, they find her and she's still alive at this point. Okay, so now they attempt to get her back in the boat. So this entails someone getting in a freaking survival suit, getting harnessed in, clipped in, and they lower you over the side of the boat on a halyard. So you get lowered into the water and then you have to try to get something around her to get hoisted out of the water. So they find her, they can't get her in the boat. And then they get separated again. Because you have to remember, the boat is going up and down on these fucking waves that are, who knows how big they really are. Our instruments said we were at our highest point, 44 feet above sea level. I, you know, we're on, a, I guess, a 44-foot wave. But it's only 44 feet down to sea level. You still have the trough of the wave. So that could be another 10, 20, 30, 40 feet. Who the fuck knows, right? My point is, it's very difficult to have a 70-foot boat bobbing up and down next to a fucking person in the water, okay? Because every time that boat comes down or, or makes a wave, it pushes the person away from the fucking boat. So they had her, they lost her, had to come around, try to find her again, and by the time they got to her the second time, she had already passed away. They were able to recover her body. They tried to resuscitate her when they got her on board, but they couldn't. It's just fucking tragic. I, you know, what, what do you, the hell do you do? What do you say? The having her and then losing her, holy shit. I mean, that just must play in their minds on repeat. I can't even imagine dealing with that survival guilt and the woulda, coulda, shouldas, I had her, all that stuff that goes through the, the heads of the people that were trying to recover. I, it's just fucking imaginable. So this is all going on. The race officials notifies the fleet. So all 12 boats are notified that this happened. And we set up a time to participate in a moment of remembrance as they give Sarah a burial at sea. Another reality of offshore sailing. We're 15 plus days away from land. Okay. So you need to give the deceased a burial at sea and just commit their body to the ocean because you certainly can't have them in the boat for 15 days. That's the decent and right thing to do when you're in the ocean. Again, something never thought I would know, participate in, experience that was fucked. And at this point, all the round the worlders and all the boats, they're fucking devastated because they've spent a lot of time with Sarah over the course of the last 20,000 miles they sailed, the last seven stopovers they've had. Right, the round the worlders, they all hang out together, and they during the stopovers, it's a it's a tight knit group. These people are are sharing one hell of an experience together, sailing around the world. So you get pretty close to this group of all the people from the twelve boats and the leggers, the people just doing a leg here and there. You know, we're also gutted too. But many of us, including myself, we didn't even know her. But I mean, it was still fucking tragic. So I remember, I think everyone took about an hour or so. We got all the tears out and we got back to work. I mean, you have to really. What, 
what other choice do you have, right? There's absolutely nothing you can do about it. And you just kind of have to focus all your energy on getting home. And then you deal with the fucking trauma that you didn't know you'd be getting as a result of this race. I made another entry later on that night of just another memory when I was night helming. It was 30 knots of wind. We were going dead downwind. We had a full mainsail and our biggest headsail up. So these are very hard conditions in the boat because the boat is absolutely overpowered and you have a very fine line to operate in before bad shit happens. I had to keep the boat at about 50 degrees on the compass. If I went up to 60, we would round up and the boat would round right up into the wind. And if I went down to 60, I would crash jibe. I'll put a video about what a crash jibe looks like in the description, but for all those that sail, crash jibes are bad. So I had 10 degrees to my right, I was fucked. 10 degrees to my left, I was fucked. All while just wrestling this 70 foot boat down these huge waves in 30 knots of breeze. So very, very stressful night because every wave was a fight. I, I did about an hour and a half and I was done. I couldn't feel my shoulders. My assistant watched it and Mike had to drive for a while. You, it, it's, it's just a constant battle. I mean, think about it. Every wave, you're just fucking wrestling this thing. All the meanwhile, your asshole is absolutely puckered because you got people on the deck right? So you can't crash drive. You can't round up. I mean, it's the safety things going through your head. We also sailed through a snowstorm. So the ski goggles I was wearing was really paying off. Everyone kind of giggled at me when I, when I was, when I told them I brought them, but yeah, I was rocking ski goggles sailing in the snow. So that was, um, definitely on the list of many firsts in my life. We also put up one of our spinnakers and where the lines connect to the spinnaker, that ripped off. So it's the clue of the sail where the lines connect. They just ripped off. So here's a problem. How do you get the sail back down and into the boat? Because it's attached at the top of the mast. It's attached to your deck, but there's no way to control and pull the sail in. So what we had to do is actually take the tack. So that's the part that connects the sail to the deck. We had to take that, run a line to that and to a winch and winch the fucking sail back into the boat. You know, you learn a lot of like skills when shit goes wrong. And one of the hardest things to do is get a sail down when it's windy because the wind just wants to send the sail up. Normally you have to pull a line to bring the sail up, right? When it's windy, you can just let the sail go and it goes up. So getting them down is difficult. It takes a lot of people. And in this case, we needed to actually winch the sail down. It's just too freaking windy. You know, at this point, sailing in 30, 40 knots of wind is the new normal. Like, that's our baseline. It's not going below 30 knots. And it doesn't matter how windy it is, anything over 30 knots, you can't hear anything but the wind. So the communication on deck is hand signals, and it's not verbal. Everything is nonverbal at this point. Because you can yell as loud as you can, and the person fucking six feet away from you isn't hearing shit. Because A, the wind's blowing your voice in a different direction. B, all you hear is the wind sound in your ears. And that gets so loud, it drowns out everything else. Right? It's like sticking your head out of a fucking moving car. You can't hear shit other than the wind. So I also made a note about the watercolor. So in the Pacific, you don't get many days of fucking sunshine. Okay? So everything is gray. 
the sky is gray, the fucking water is gray. But when you when you see a top of a wave or it breaks or it crests, the water is crystal blue, just beautiful blue. But you don't see that unless it's like a top of a wave. So I did make a note of that because that was wild. Because you're looking at the water, it's gray. It looks fucking miserable. It's cold. It looks as miserable as it feels. But when that wave breaks, you just see this brilliant, beautiful blue water. I also got a compliment on my helming from one of the Round the Worlders. And it was actually this guy's second time around the world, which made my day. I think he said my, my strong helming was impressive. He had such experience with this boat. He could drive it. He was one of the best helmsmen we had. And he could anticipate and he drove with finesse. And he didn't need to use the amount of muscles and energy I had to expend to keep the boat going. And that was just a sheer lack of wheel time for me. But getting a compliment from him was fucking huge because this guy was just an animal. He was he was an older gentleman. He just got up, just crushed it. No time for chit-chat. So for him to say something, that fucking made my day. I also made a note in here. My uncle from Colorado wanted to know what the stars looked like in the middle of the Pacific. That was one of the things that was said to me before I left. So I did write that there were so many stars in the sky that it looked fake but it's beautiful. But also, you can see an approaching squall on the horizon, right? So when you're steering at night and you can see the stars, you'll use stars as navigation. So I'll be pointing towards stars in front of me and that'll keep me going straight. The problem there is when those stars that you're aiming for disappear, you know there's an approaching storm. <laughs> so. It is kind of cool to be looking at the stars, but then you know shit's about to get real when you no longer see the star you were just fucking staring at for the last three hours. And then once you can't see the stars, oh, now it gets fun. Because now you huddle down and just stare down at your compass. And this is illuminated in like a red light so it doesn't fuck up your night vision. But you just stare at this compass. So you're not even looking where you're going. You're just trying to keep the boat straight on the compass. And the mind fuck is because when you're not, you're not looking around, you're just looking down. It feels like you're going in circles. So the sensation in your body is like, holy shit, we're going in circles, but you're going straight. Those nights suck. And when you have a star to at least point to, so much better of an experience. But I did make a note of that because that was the biggest mind F of driving at night. April 6th at 5.46 p.m., we crossed the international dateline. So today, we went back in time one day. So we lived April 6th twice. So that's pretty cool. So when you cross the international dateline, I think the maritime tattoo for that is a golden dragon, which I've yet to get, but I may at some point. So I also made a note there's a couple of days of good miles. Tomorrow, we should be under 2,000 miles to go. We're approaching about 10 days left. Thoughts of Seattle fill my mind. Doing daily emails with my family. The kids missing me is really hard. I underestimated how much I would miss them and my wife. I, I really thought I'd be able to tuck it away, but with the emails and the communication, it's just not possible, right? Because you just have reminders. 
And I wrote, I, I have accomplished my goal of this trip. Could I do it? Yes. We led the pack. We outsailed the top boats when we're close. So despite a subpar finish by this yacht standards, I, I was actually pretty proud so far. All right. Because this boat had high standards. They were very competitive in all the legs. We were kicking ass for most of this race, but we just keep just running into shit. And I thought I would be more bummed, but I was actually really proud to actually still be alive. So I made a note. I learned a lot about myself, leadership, ocean racing. Uh, we have a big storm coming tomorrow. We're expecting 60 to 90 knots of wind. That would have scared me before this trip. Now it's just time to get the GoPro and make up some miles. So it's funny how you get desensitized to these things once you're in the middle of the ocean, you've dealt with it for a while, and frankly, you don't have a choice anyway. There's really nothing you can do other than just, you know, giddy up. At this point in the race, during the really cold nights, we would split up the night watch to about 30 minutes on deck. So there'd be like two of us on deck, I'd be driving, and be one other person in the cockpit, and everyone else would just be down below, trying to get warm, drinking tea, staying awake, being ready in case we needed them. But I remember it was so fucking cold that I just started singing songs out loud to myself without any music. And then I realized how difficult that is. <laughs> if I hear the music, I know every word to all my songs, right? But just try to start singing all the words to a song without any music playing, that proved to be a little bit more difficult. I remember I sang Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here and Vanilla Ice, Ice Ice Baby. For some reason, I knew all the words to those songs without any music. So the next time I went up on deck, I brought my little iPod shuffle and I put one earbud in and that was fucking rad. Okay. So now I have a soundtrack to just ripping in 30 knots of breeze in the pitch dark. And I remember I was just rocking out to Florence and the Machine. So every time I hear anything from that ceremonials album, I am right back on the Pacific, freezing my ass off, driving a boat. Amazing album. It actually fit really well. I also made a note that the dry suit had been a savior at this point. I was really just missing some warmer socks. But in those conditions, you're not moving your feet and your hands enough to keep them warm anyway. So it doesn't matter how many layers you have on, you're just going to get cold. And when you get off watch, we all used the engine room as like a drying station because we had a generator that was always running. So it was nice and warm in there. So it'd be a race to get off deck, get all your cold, wet shit off, and try to find a place in this little engine room to hang your shit to hopefully get it somewhat either warmer or drier by the next time you had to be on deck. And at this point, in these conditions, just water is just dripping from the ceiling. The water is everywhere in this boat. There's so much condensation built up, it's just dripping down off of the ceiling. April 8th, I made a, another journal entry and I wrote, just finished another edition of the Watch Leaders Cafe. So we had another, it was our turn for Mother Watch again. So Ian and I really tried to make things fun where we had music playing, we did sing-alongs, we were just really trying to ramp up the morale and have some fun. Everyone really enjoyed it, you know, because one, the around the world is really look forward to people coming on the boat, like new people. Because you got new music, you got new stories. It's just a it's just a breath of fresh air for them, right? Because they're just grinding every day. So for Ian and I to come on, we had great music between the two of us. We had, you know, really outgoing personalities as far as trying to make people laugh and just get 
people in a better mood. Everyone was really looking forward to our time where we had Mother Watch and they called it the Watch Leader Cafe. So we did sing-alongs to Sweet Dreams. We didn't start the fire, Down Under. So we had like an 80s themed dinner. And it was cool. And there's some video footage of that. I'll put a link for that one of those videos down below. But it was just a great morale boost for the troops. And there's nothing like a good sing-along to get the smiles back on everyone's faces. And at this point, we still got it 1,500 miles to go. And we're not really making much progress on the leaders. So we needed something to really, you know, keep everyone going. The next day, April 9th, I made a entry at 5.55 p.m., I wrote great shift with the code three. That was our small spinnaker. Big workout keeping the boat pointed in the right direction and 25 to 30 knots of wind. We got 1,100 miles to go. Been texting with my wife. We had a, I had a satellite in reach that could text no matter where you are in the world. We had a nice clear night last night. We hit one squall with 50 knots of wind. And by the time we get all prepared for that, the, the, it was gone. The amount of work that goes into sailing with these spinnakers is unbelievable because the spinnakers are constantly getting repaired. You need to check them every time you, every time they flog. So every time they collapse and fill back up with air and they pop, you have to you look through them. You have to inspect them, make sure there's no rips or tears. And if you collapse a kite in anything over 15 knots of wind, it makes the most horrific sound when it fills up. It, it is, it is unbelievable. And at this point, talking with my wife via the text is, is fucking hard, okay? Because she is, she was already worried. But now with Sarah dying, the conditions we're going through, she is just, she's scared. And now she's angry. Because she's getting updates every day from the website, right? So every day there's a, a you know, a fucking report. There's our crew diaries. They're getting real-time information on the shit we're dealing with. So as I'm trying to sugarcoat what's actually happening, she's reading it from either our skipper, who's ever writing the, the crew diary. So she is well aware of the situation we're feeling and she's not happy about it. And she wasn't shy to let me know. And I, that was one of the biggest regrets I have with this whole fucking race is putting her in that position because I underestimated how that would affect her. I thought if I was just able to, hey, everything's going great, it just didn't work that way. So we're going to leave off on part four there. We'll continue in part five with my April 10th diary entry, where the first sentence of that was, last night was the most stressful watch so far. So stay tuned for that one. Thank you very much for listening to part four of my journey across the Pacific. I hope this is at least entertaining or worth listening to. Hope everyone has a great day. And if you're not having a great day, just remember it could always be worse. You could be in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, freezing your ass off, getting battered by storms, and getting yelled at by your wife. Mm -hmm.